Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon. I'm Matthew Taylor from the RSA, and I'm excited to host a brilliant panel of social commentators and change makers for today's special RSA online event. We've brought our guests together to mark the publication of a wonderful new book. I've been reading it all week, and uh, I've been thoroughly engaged by it. Uh, it's the first book by uh, book by the first of our speakers, John Yates. The book is called Fractured, Why Our Societies Are Coming Apart and How We Put Them Back Together Again. It looks at how we came to be so divided by income, age, education, race, politics, arguing that one of the biggest sources of fracture is our inherent human motivation to spend our time with people just like us. But John argues that if we succumb to that temptation, it causes all sorts of problems ranging from failures in our economy to insecurity to damage to our health. And he argues it doesn't have to be like this. John suggests that the pandemic has given us an unprecedented opportunity to come together as a society. And he has some radical suggestions as to what we need to do to overcome the divides created by our human characteristics. So these are the issues that we're going to be focusing on with our speakers today, exploring division, the nature of division, the causes of division, but also practical proposals and projects that can give us hope for a stronger, more united future and a renewal of our common life. So John's in a moment going to expand on his hypothesis try to boil down the 300 pages of his book into a 10 minute presentation. And we're gonna hear then from two respondents. So John, in addition to being the author of Fractured is the first executive director at the Youth Endowment Fund and has over two decades of experience in the youth and community sector. He's an experienced policymaker and he's worked alongside the Secretary of State for Education as chief policy advisor. And he was also co-founder of the National Citizen Service. Ndidi Akezi is a CEO at UK Youth and has had a career committed to youth work, life skills development, and youth equality. Ndidi is a board member for youth homelessness charity Centrepoint UK, uh, the National Citizen Service, and the Mulberry Schools Trust. And in 2020, she was awarded an OBE for services to young people during the COVID-19 response. Sundar Katwala is the director of the think tank British Future, an organization that looks to understand attitudes towards issues such as immigration, integration, race, and identity, and to find constructive policy solutions that can bring people together on common ground. British Future is a founding member of the Together Coalition, working to establish the 2020s as a decade of reconnection in our society beyond the COVID pandemic. So we've got a wonderful panel, but John, it's to you that I'm going to turn first. Uh, in the book, you argue that the cause of polarization is not something out there, it's something in us. Tell us about that and how we overcome it. Thank you very much, Matthew, and it's an absolute pleasure to be here uh, with you. Um, but the core argument of uh, the book is that the British and American people are right. When you ask uh, British people, they will they tell pollsters, half of them, tell pollsters that their country has never been so divided. When you ask uh, Americans, four out of fifth of them will tell pollsters that their country is mainly or entirely divided. And I think we see that in our society. Half of those of us with degrees have no friends who don't have a degree. The vast majority of pensioners in both the UK and the US have no friends who are millennials unless they are their grandchildren. A fifth of Leave voters and a quarter of Remainers have no friends who voted the other way. Half of us have no friends who are from a different ethnic background. And the biggest social divide of all remains class. A barrister here in the UK would have to invite 100 people into their garden, three times the legal limit, in order to reach one person who was unemployed. And I believe we have hugely misdiagnosed the cause of division. And again, I think the average member of the public has been ahead of the commentariat. The average person will say to you, why are you worried about this? Birds of a feather flock together. And 
the, the science is with the average member of the public. And so from Kuala Lumpur to Kingston, what researchers have found for decades is that we have a small bias towards people who remind us of ourselves. And that affects who we work with, that affects where we live, that affects who we're friends with. Scientists call this homophily. I prefer the term people like me syndrome. We all have this small bias. But this constant bias can't by itself explain our present divisions because it's a constant bias, any more than the constant existence of the sun is a good explanation of why it's sunny today when it wasn't sunny yesterday. So something must have changed. Well, what has changed? Well, to understand that, the book takes us to northern Tanzania, particularly to the land around Lake Akasi, where the, um, where the people of the Hadza tribe live. They are 400 in number, and their ancestors have lived there for 60,000 years. And on a, on a moonlit, uh, on a moonless night, they will gather and they will dance uh, the Apem dance. Now, uh, the, the men will wear a headdress of dark ostrich feathers, bells are in, on one ankle, a rattle in hand, and they, they dance and they, they, the, the women and the children join, join in. Now, the Apem dance plays no obvious purpose. The, the Hadza have no religion. There's no obvious explanation for what they are doing. But what anthropologists have found is the Hadzas trust two types of people more than anyone else. One is their family, and the second is people who they've danced the Apem dance with. They're more likely to share tools, gossip, bed down for the night with those they have danced with. The dance plays an important part in creating bonds of trust between different families. It makes diversity work. And throughout human history, you can find similar institutions that connect people together. So when we became uh, farmers rather than foragers, organized religion often played this role. The average 14th century villager spent one in four days in a feast day, an extraordinarily high number of days. Rites of passage became so significant that laws had to be passed to dampen the enthusiasm. In When we became factory workers living in the cities, we see the massive birth of clubs and associations and societies knitting people together, plus uh, mandatory schooling, completely new to uh, human society, and people going to the local workplace where they met those who were different. These institutions get around people like me syndrome because you don't choose who you're spending time with. You don't choose who you dance the Apem dance with. And so they knitted societies together. And human history has been a battle between people like me syndrome and these institutions. But we don't even have a name for these institutions. I, I suggest we call them the common life. So the reason why we are divided today is because of the decline of that common life the decline of the common life that linked together our grandparents and our great-grandparents. We have lost much of that voluntary common life, the clubs and associations. Uh, every generation born after 1950 was less likely than the one before to join a club or a society. But we've also lost much of the mandatory common life. We now believe it's critically important that we choose where we send our children to school. We expect, of course, to choose where we work, not just go to the local factory. And so when choice comes in, uh, back comes people like me syndrome. So the question we really should have been debating and the question we really need to debate is why has the common life declined? Why has it gone away? And there are two main villains. The problem is they're things that we as Westerners really like. So what is it that's done in the mandatory common life? It's choice. If you review all the literature that Google's ever scanned, the word choice is twice as likely to pop up on any particular line of a book uh, now than it was 70 years ago. Um, we, we critically believe that we shouldn't be forced to do national service. We shouldn't be forced to send our children to the local school. We must be able to choose. And that's great, but it does undermine the mandatory common life. The voluntary common life meanwhile, has been undermined by change. We've seen a huge amount of uh, rapid change over the last 50 years. The economy has moved from being largely manufacturing-based to largely services-based. Uh, how we spend our time, the competition has changed, particularly the creation of TV. Uh, our commuting patterns have changed. The movement of people has changed. Our values have changed. And there's nothing wrong with change. But voluntary associations are not very good at adapting, as anyone who's been a member of any club will know. They tend to try and stay exactly the same. They don't adapt fast. They don't mutate. They don't rapidly scale. And so when they get wiped out by change, nothing tends to fill the gap. And so we saw the decline of uh, the nomadic rituals when we became villagers. There's a period where there's nothing to unite villagers together. We saw the same when villagers move to cities.
And so change and choice has knocked out the common life. And that matters. It makes our democracy more fragile. It undermines our economy. It reduces our ability to feel less anxious. It is bad for our society. So what are our options as I come into land here? There are three main options that we've got. The first is to do nothing. We can simply wait it out. Um, what the, the sweep of history would tell us is a new set of institutions in time will evolve. But it took 50 years for the industrial common life to turn up. It took a thousand years for the agrarian common life to turn up. Uh, it's quite a long period of time to wait. Uh, it's fine, but we, we've got to accept that division is our destiny for a period of time until it arrives. The second is to slow down the rate of change. This is effectively the approach the Nordic countries have taken, and they now find themselves first, second, third, and fifth for nations where people trust, support, and help each other, and their clubs and societies have held up over the last 50 years. Um, I don't believe this is a credible approach over the next half century with the rate of technological change that is coming down the line. So what does that leave? Well, that leaves a the final option is the one that the country came, that came fourth in that list of countries of high trust, support and help. That country is Singapore, I mean, which has hugely high levels of change, very open change indeed, but it has elements of its society where citizens are required to spend time with people who are different. That affects where how schooling is done, that affects national service, that even affects how housing is allocated. I believe a Western version of this model is possible. What might it look like? It, it might look like community service for teenagers as part of the national curriculum. It might look like parenting programs as something you do to, in order to in return, get your subsidy for childcare, where you meet other parents from different backgrounds. It might involve a national retirement service for us all as we move from work into the community. Now, you might well say, John, that's lovely, but this is all completely inconceivable. I would say two final things. Firstly, fine. But what is the credible alternative to the approach I'm laying out? So far, we seem to be bringing warm words to a gunfight. The final thing I would say is that every innovation in our politics, from the EU to Brexit, from the welfare state to privatization, started off as inconceivable until it became plausible, then likely and eventually unavoidable. In writing this book, I hope to start that journey for the idea of a mandatory common life. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. Uh, and as I say, it's a cracking book. Uh, uh, before I bring in Ndidi and Sundar, uh, because I know the argument very well, partly because you and I have worked together in the past on this, and I completely buy into it, and also because I read the book, there's a couple of the bits of the argument that you haven't mentioned that I just want you to just say a couple of things about very quickly. So the first is that, that being together means actually being together. It means being together in the same space, talking to each other. It doesn't mean leaving, living cheek by jowl. Because when I worked with you many years ago on this, one of the most shocking statistics we found was that London, despite its diversity, was more divided than other parts of the country in the sense that you ought to be mixing with very different people because we do live cheek by jowl, but we don't. So just kind of be clear to us, what is required for us genuinely to be mixing in terms of the benign effects that mixing generates? It's a fantastic question. Is it, is it, another example of this is, uh, is, 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 is in prisons. I mean, in um, prison guards and prisoners may come from different backgrounds, different walks of life, different levels of wealth, definitely different lifestyles, um, in that one is obviously in the secure state and one is not. I, I don't think you're to suggest that their mixing experience creates high levels of trust and connection. Um, that there are People need to do more than just live in the same area. Um, what do we know? And you see this in the examples I gave, like the Apem dance. Three things. Firstly, um, a, a certain equality of status. There must be a sense that one group isn't more important than the other. And you see that again in the dance. Um, it's not that certain people win the dance. It's not, you know, strictly come dancing. Um, it's not that only people who provided more food for the meal get to dance and the others don't. It's all very equal in the way that it's done. The, the second is um, intensity of experience. Doing something challenging and intense together has a hugely positive impact on levels of trust. And it's really interesting the psychology of how this works. And it basically comes down to 
our own, how we form our identity of who we are. When we think about who we are, most of us will fall back on particular intense episodes of our life. I'm the person who overcame that bankruptcy. I'm the person who raised that child. I'm the person who survived the London Marathon. We don't think I'm the person who lost the remote control last week. You know, it's based on intense experiences. And these episodic memories, as they're called, um, whoever's also in the picture, tends, we tend to think of as being like us. So we ran the marathon with someone, that person is like us. It doesn't really matter from a sort of, if, if sociologists may say, well, these people are different in some way. To us, they feel like us. So these episodes of togetherness are really critical. The, the final one um, is routine. Um, so doing something routinized together, whether it's marching uh, at my school, uh, people spend a lot of time marching if you weren't uh, if you weren't more involved in camping and voluntary activity. And we always wonder what the heck are they marching all the time for? The same is true of armies today. Why do they spend so much time marching? The truth is doing something in routine creates a level of trust. I think that's why breaking bread and eating together is actually often a trust building activity. It's a certain routinized ritual that we um, that we're taking part in. Great. I think, by the way, you're massively underestimating the traumatic nature of losing the remote control. But we know we'll we'll come on to the malign impact of TV later, maybe. So then, final question, John, before I turn to Indeed and Cinder. Again, you can't go into this in depth, I know, but one of the powerful things in the book is the evidence you provide for the impact that segregation has on our health, on our economy, on our sense of security. So. It's important, I think, to underline that, John, because many people might say, well, the, the remedies you suggest are quite challenging. Is it worth it? Uh, just because you've got some kind of liberal ideal of us all, you know, rubbing along together uh, well. But you want to say there are very serious consequences of our division. That's absolutely right. And I think that's a really important point. I think it's a danger that we start to go down this line because we aesthetically like the idea of people mixing up, which I think is a sort of terrible place to start. Um, people like spending time with people who have something, some things in common with. You know, people enjoy, you know, I am nerdily interested in playing a game of chess. You know, I'm nerdily interested in certain TV programmes. No one should have to suffer my West Wing chat while playing me at chess unless they're into that sort of thing. It, it's totally normal and healthy for us to spend some time with people with similar interests. The problem is at the extreme, these divisions actually undermine things that most people watching this care about. So most of us would like to live in a society which is relatively fair that people have a chance to get on. It's why we spend so much money uh, on schooling. We're prepared to be forced to pay taxes to fund that schooling, to make sure that people who need a leg up in life get it. So we accept that this is important as a society. But what the evidence in the book shows is that it's not just what you know, it's who you know. If you don't have networks, if you don't have connections with people from uh, more higher income backgrounds, you're not going to get those opportunities. And so the segregation effect actually is at the core of a lot of our lack of social mobility. That's why Salt Lake City in the US, where they spend almost nothing on schools, is one of the highest social mobility places in the, U in the US, because actually the Mormon church, as it happens, <laughs> creates a space where people from different income backgrounds mix. Um, but it's also at the core of our concerns about our democracy. You know, why was Trump able to convince so many perfectly normal, sensible people that the country's election had been rigged? Why was he able to spread this untruth about half the country? Because the people who were listening to him never met that half of the country. It's very hard to convince uh, Mo that Sally is up to something or Sally that Mo is up to something if these people know each other. And so these divisions actually open us up to authoritarians and undermine our democracy. Great. So, John, that was brilliant. Um, and Didi, Sunder, I'm going to turn to you first just to ask you what you think of John's uh, hypothesis. Do you, what you, do, you, do you agree with it entirely or are there elements of it that you, you want to question? I'll start with you, Ndidi. Hi, thanks. Um, I mean, just so fascinating. I, 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 I'm, I'm drawn to John's way of thinking, just generally, just in terms of the thoughtfulness of it. Um, I, I'm reflecting actually a lot on what it is that you've just said, and the, I, I think the, the main thing is just to share my reflections and see see what you think about them. Um, I guess as you were talking, one of the first questions I was having was, um, what is the mindset with which you have to enter? 
whether it's mandatory common life or whatever it is, what's the mindset that has to be present for that experience to do what you're saying? Because for me, that actually is really important. And I, I might even argue that's more important because I would imagine that you could do the experience you've said. And if your mindset isn't there, you could still leave without that change. And so if the mindset is critical, then it asks, then it leads to the question of, well, then actually, could you duplicate what you're looking for via the mandatory common life in other areas? Because one of the things I know that we've spoken about before is for me, one of the, the main um, sparks or um, um, catalysts for, for what we're ultimately trying to do here, from my view, is empathy. It's the seek, it's the desire to understand other people. And for me, you can't get to solutions. You can't get to anything that we're seeking without that fundamental desire to understand another viewpoint, another lived experience um, without the defense, without the argument, without the pushback. And for me, that's mindset. So I guess my, my question in this, I, I actually am I'm not far away from where you are on it, but my, my worry is that we start with a framework without the ingredients that would make that framework do what it needs to do. Um, and then the other reason why, maybe just to push on that a bit more is that actually in light of everything that you've said, the one thing that I struggle to understand how that hasn't helped the situation is the globalization of our world. You know, my, 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 my question is that again, if you have that mindset, I almost feel like we have at our fingertips the opportunity to learn about others and other places in a way that we've never been able to before. So if the seek is there, you actually now can find out more. You can put yourself in different environments. You can expose yourself to different things um, if you so desired. So that, that would be my, my other question. And then the final one, as you were talking, I, I kept on thinking about the groups that are, what's the way of framing this? There are certain groups of communities that are almost forced to engage with other groups and communities just by virtue of the fact that they are a minority, right? So there, there are so many examples where I don't have the luxury of saying I only know X number of people or not because I work in a professional world. I've gone through, you know, different institutions. I've gone to different networks. So I'm actually forced by virtue of what I'm trying to engage in to expose myself to other communities. I know lots of people where that isn't the case, where it's very easy to not um, engage because even with the choices you're making for yourself. So again, I'm curious as to how, um, you know, you talk about race, you talk about class, but whether that's equal across the board, because my sense is that there are more, there are different classes where the, there is more luxury to not engage, if, if, if that makes sense. So those are my kind of top three reflections on that. So John, it would be, it would be great if you could, if you could respond to that. And I, I really loved your first point, Nadidi, about this kind of what is the mindset. My, um, my mother has a boyfriend who mortifies her all the time because whenever they go out, and he recognizes somebody who's famous, he just goes straight up and says, hi, oh, I really like your films, or I really like, I mean, and my mother, because she's like me, she has a very low embarrassment threshold. She is utterly, this is terrifying for her. Now I'm the same, and I don't want to make light of this, but one of the reasons I wouldn't reach out at the school gates or whatever to people who feel very different to me is, is just embarrassment, is fear that I'd be wrong. That I, so, you, you talk about, the, you, I think right at the end, John, you, in your list of 32 things to do, you kind of say, don't be embarrassed or overcome your res or whatever. But Indeed makes a good point about what is the kind of mindset is required for us as individuals to, to overcome the kind of segregatory kind of dimensions of society. That's a great question. I, I, I think your, your example also, of, um, that sort of social embarrassment, um, is a really good description of what people like me syndrome is. I, I think there's a danger that we think it's some sort of active hatred of the other. That's And the, the evidence is, doesn't back that up at all. It's much more those group of people over, the, I, I, I'm coming to pick my child up. I see that some of the parents are standing over here are wearing glasses and they're broadly all the same ethnic background, which chimes with mine. And then over here, we've got another group and their dress sense is a bit different. Those people might think it's a bit weird if I go over there. I don't want to, feel weird, I'll go over here. That's what it 
that's how it plays out. It is this sort of awkwardness. I, I do I do sort of push in the book at the end, look, what, what could we do as individuals? And I do think one thing we can do is try and sort of overcome a bit of that fear and say hello, which is slightly sort of playing into your mindset point. And did he, you know, to what extent are we prepared to sort of actually just be curious and explore? I'm a bit cautious about taking it too far. I mean, we know, um, uh, I think we can confidently say that Americans are more extrovert than Brits. Um, and this problem is bigger, I would argue, in the US than it is in the UK. And so I, I wouldn't want to sort of overstate how far that can take us. My, 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 my other sort of slight sort of challenge is, I think there is a there is something powerful and important about sort of trying to get people on board with the idea of curiosity and interest and curiosity about difference. I think though we we, we do need to recognise that a lot of people find difference very scary and nerve wracking, and and I think sometimes we 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 get into a position where we say I love difference, and then we list a load of people who maybe come from a different ethnic background than us, but actually all got university degrees and all voted the same way as us. And when and I've heard people before say who I've worked with who I love say, ah, oh, why did everyone vote? Why do those people vote to leave? They just are so intolerant of difference. And I sort of just think, how comfortable are all of us really when it comes to certain differences? And so I do think mindset could take us some of the way, but I think ultimately that, that we need to take advantage of the way humans have evolved. And here's the good, the bad news is people like me syndrome. The good news is we're actually really good at connecting with people when we're thrown together. If we're, for, if we're in the same place and we've got an activity to do, uh, take laughter. Laughter is this sort of really weird evolved trait. So we tend to think of it as a sort of instinctive response to someone saying something funny, like um, uh, like sneezing is. It, it's not, you know, you, you don't laugh, you laugh much more in company than alone. Laughter's evolved as a way to connect us together. We actually have a number of tweaks like this that make us really good at connecting with each other when we're in the right setting. And then we tend to see that people are like us and it, then it's not curiosity that pulls us through, it's an appreciation of the similarity that we have in the per with the person. So, so I'm I'm slightly more pro connect and then find what's in common, rather than pushing too hard consistently down the curiosity line, um, because I think we will lose some people as we um, as as we do that. Um, and and I mean, John, indeed, is other point I thought, which is really powerful, is that that, that in a sense globalization in all its forms, cultural globalization, economic globalization. The paradox is that we do know more about other people than we've ever known before. And we rub shoulders even with other people. And that, and that I think, helps to disguise from us the fact that we're not actually spending quality time with them. And, you know, in, in a sense, this is, this is a big point of, of your book and your work, is to say just because we live in a world where di distance is dying and we know everything about everywhere, everywhere, and through the internet we can connect with anyone, that doesn't necessarily mean we're having contact. With, with those people. I know you'll come back to that later, John, but I must bring in Sunder, who's been very, very patient uh, uh, sitting there. So Sunder, what do you make of, of John's kind of core hypothesis? I am certainly broadly sympathetic to the idea that we need to act more on our divides and consciously decide how we're going to bridge them. I think that's become an easier argument to make that we're more anxious and fragmented as a society than we, than we want to be. And I think the big challenge is how does a liberal, democratic, individualistic society choose to have more of a common life or choose to get more meaningful contact? So I think when John talks about sort of, you know, the sort of liberal version of Singapore, I think it will have to be quite a liberal version of Singapore. I, I think this can be very difficult to impose it. We've got, got to choose this mandatory um, common life. I think this debate has got stuck sometimes over the 10, 20 years we've been having it between the people who want to say, but I think the glass is half full or I think the glass is half empty. And sometimes those um, those camps swap sides, actually. Um, for most of the last 20 years, the right was being somewhat pessimistic that we might be sleepwalking to segregation, maybe ethnic segregation. The liberal side of society was being quite optimistic that individualism, social liberalism, diversity was growing. Um, after the Brexit referendum, to some extent, those camps swapped sides and the left became rather pessimistic 
about where we are and the right perhaps uh, became more optimistic. Um, I, I think you see that in, in different ways. It's a shared view, I think, that we want to do more of what brings us together. So sort of debating whether it's kind of a crisis or a problem to avert is, is, I, think, is I think missing the point actually that we could agree on doing more. What we don't have, I think, is enough of a theory of how to do it and get beyond the individual and all being a bit braver at the school gate, who should do it and how we organize it, um, which institutions can help us to bring it about or institutionalize it. I mean, some of us you know, might be great organizers of everyone else and organizers of street parties and so on, probably one in 50 of us is. A lot of us would be joiners in of things that we regret don't happen, but we're not going to go about and make them happen. So I think there is a challenge in our society about how we how we organize this and, and who does that and, and how it happens. I think we want it more because we value choice and individualism and fragmentation and we don't want to watch two channels the whole time. We slightly miss the fact that we only get to come together in a big way once every few years or once a year. So I think there's an appetite for moments that that kind of throw us together, uh, you know, in a special way that perhaps could help us institutionalize that contact. The big challenge is to make people like us a broader circle, not to not think that we're going to connect with people like us. So John, really powerful points by Sunda. I mean, I guess going to this question of a point you make at the end of the book, which is that politicians rhetorically always refer, always talk about bringing the country together, overcoming the divide. But then when it comes to specific decisions, whether it's about inequality or school choice or town planning or whatever it might be, they don't, they don't deliver the goods. And I think that's what Sunda's getting at, which is what is it that one has to do to get to the point at which it is seen legit in our in our kind of individualistic liberal society it is seen as a legitimate thing to do the social engineering because that's the phrase that would immediately be used about it to undertake the kind of social engineering that is required to to get people to live the common life yeah so um i mean a couple of thoughts i mean i think um sunder's right that we can get sort of caught up in a sort of um uh, debate about very small differences. You know, how bad is it? Is it very bad? Is it a bit bad? I, 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 I sort of agree that the debate sort of sometimes falls into that. Um, and people who basically agree with each other find themselves disagreeing. Um, but I, I think my push would be, I, I do think this is not taken seriously as policy. So when it, when it comes to an issue that actually affects whether we mix with people who are different, this issue never comes up. So let's take, for example, the, um, the, the decision to uh, bring in the benefit cap, you know, restriction in the UK on how much money people can basically get towards housing allowance. I mean, that, that has had a significant impact on poorer families moving out of richer areas. Um, it create it has a segregationist effect, um, which is bad for all the reasons I lay out in the book, including social mobility and democracy. Um, some people made that point, but it really wasn't discussed. And, and I'll be amazed if policymakers genuinely that was something that was genuinely considered. I, I don't think it's seen as like serious policy. I, I think it's seen as um, oh, let's have a garden party, and oh, okay, we'll find a few million pounds. We've got some savings at um, you know one of the departments. We'll give a few million pounds to a coalition of small charities. Um, it's sort of the way we might have talked about education 150 years ago. Um, and I think what I want to say is the, the issue of division impacts all the things we care about, and it's time to take it properly seriously. And, and I'm very happy for someone to say, no, we don't need to mandate. Here's another way to achieve the goal. Um, I spent 10 years trying to build a national citizen service that was voluntary to get young people to mix together. We built the fastest growing youth programme in Europe, and it still only reached only about one in six children. So I, I, I think without mandation, I just don't think you can get there. Um, but I do think you can do it liberally. So what I mean by that is I think you could apply some tests. One, don't do anything that the majority of people in the public are not going to support. Two, don't do anything that the majority of people who would be required to do the activity wouldn't support. Three, don't do anything that the majority of people who have done the activity don't still support. I, I think those are some pretty good principles. And I think that would set a bar that you would have to come up with something that people taking part would really see the benefit of. The, the only other thing I just wanted to touch on quickly was, and Didi, your very important point about race. I mean, you know, this, this book speaks broadly about 
difference because I think sometimes we separate off class as being one issue of difference, race as being another one, age as another one, when actually they have common causes. But there is something very specific about the history of race in this country, in the US and in Western Europe. I mean, within, you know, li- within our lifetimes, it was illegal for a, a, a black man and a white woman to marry in America. Um, you know, within our lifetimes, the National Housing Association in America had a handbook that told people don't spend the money on mixing together different ethnic groups. I mean, we have a history of sort of forced division by the state. And that's true of the UK in a different way, but it's true of the UK too. It tolerated a set of rules for trade unions. In, only, it's only about 60 years ago, the 98% of landlords in this country said they wouldn't rent their space, they wouldn't rent a room to someone of colour. So we've got to realise the state actually tolerated and, and enforced forced division when it came to race. Now, this book is saying it's not enough just to move away from that. We need to move to actually forcing people to come together. But we've got to understand that history as we speak on this stuff. Can we explore the politics of this a, a, a bit more? And indeed, I'll come to you first. Um, so, for example, you know, as someone who represents uh, spoken for for young people, that that in a sense we are pushed towards when we campaign and we make a case we are pushed towards emphasizing difference we're pushed towards for example saying young people have never had it as hard as they are having it now and a very strong argument that that for example covid has been particularly disastrous for young people you know or um uh, uh or you know policies particularly are impacting on women or or particular uh, minority ethnic groups or whatever. So those arguments are entirely legitimate, but in a sense, what they do is they kind of reinforce the notion that what is most important about our society is is that which divides us. And it seems to me that one of the things that, that so far Joe Biden is getting right is that he is speaking about the need very passionately to tackle racism. You know, he's done some pretty progressive, pretty liberal things in relation to trans rights and stuff like that, but he does it all within the kind of frame that ultimately this is about creating a more united society. And sometimes it feels to me we get the kind of first half right, which is we need to overcome uh, inequality and prejudice, uh, but we, we forget the second half, which is that this is ultimately in pursuit of a society where we are more together. What, what do you make of that, Indeedy? I love that. I think that's such an interesting point, though, because I, I might disagree with you, actually, on that point, that I, I don't equate identifying what makes us different as division. I don't believe it has to be that. And I'm, I'm, I'm just not of the camp of the I don't see X type, you know, we're all people thing. I think what I'm getting from the, the book, the premise of the book, John, and I might be wrong, is that um, actually... The, the goal is to understand others, so people who aren't like you, um, in a way that stops the demarcation um, that, that there is a, um, I, I think for me that I would hate that the solution is that we stop talking about age or gender or any particular one issue all under the guise of, you know, all things are the same. I mean, what a boring, boring world that would be. Um, But I think your point about politics, and I might be getting myself into trouble here, but for me, that is the crux of what I'm talking about. Our entire political system is built on the attack, attack. There is no, the issue is not the substance of the discussion. The, the you are wrong and I am right is the substance of the conversation. And that is what I think division ultimately is. It's this notion that not only are you different, but you are somehow wrong. You are somehow lacking. You are somehow um, um, a, an offense to me in my own existence. That That is what's wrong. And I, I don't know how we progress when our very infrastructure, our systems are built on not just talking about what needs to be done, but putting down any other view that isn't yours and, and helping people understand that not only is it just, oh, this is, I have a different approach. It's that, no, no, that person over there is bad. They're the enemy. I mean, I always say it, I spent almost 20 years in the um, education and teaching profession. 
I wouldn't let my students watch question, you know, um, um, Commons time and, you know, our politicians in that setting. It's the most embarrassing thing I think we have going on. But yet that's our political system. And, and we all acknowledge it and tolerate it. So the, the point I'm making, and I, I actually don't want my point about mindset to be um, um, confused about you know, positivity and everything. I guess my challenge, John, is that I don't believe that simply by mandating that you spend time together, you will achieve the things that you're talking about, unless your mindset in that experience is in the right place. It, that's the bit that I'm saying, because I think there are examples where people come in and go out. They come in, they do the experience, nothing changes for them. It's the classic, I can't be racist, I've got a black friend. It's, you know, these sorts of things where we just think, just because we've touched on this a little bit, job done. It's, the work has to be much deeper than that. That's my view. I, I don't know if that is what you're suggesting, but my concern is that we won't, get to the solution that you're aiming for if it's simply a tick box of like spend time together yeah so i mean i think john, john just john before you come uh, such a powerful sure. point but i want to get sandra's perspective on it as well before you come in mm. i think i think I, indeed has put absolutely put a finger on a kind of challenge which is i can imagine many people on the left saying well look there's no point trying to put people together in a society that is so desperately unequal so we have to as it were you know, what, what is the foundation for this? And until we have a society which is substantially fairer, the, the, the notion of thrusting people together is a, in some ways a, a distraction from the real issues. So how do you get this narrative right, Cindy? I think, I think if we get it wrong and we end up more focused on division, I think politics will have a lot to do about that. And, you know, in a way, it's a feature of democratic politics that you speak to things that people care about that. But I think politics could drive that. And it would also be because we failed to encourage or incentivize or institutionalize the antidote to these dangers in our politics. Um, I agree about um, Joe Biden, but he's got his work cut out now because for 25 years in a sort of tit for tat way, American political elites have been blaming the other side and reacting and responding to their side. If you look at what's happened in British politics and society in the last five or 10 years, there's a bigger generational split, bigger geographic split um, going on than we, than we had. So it creates this risk that it's quite easy to talk to say a third of the society on the left and a third of the society on the right. And if you try and do something bigger than that, you might get penalized for it rather than thanked to do it, even though you've got very broad, moderate, temperate public opinion that would, that would like people to try harder to bridge. That group um, uh, ducks out of conflicts and issues where everyone starts shouting and in the end then has to go and vote for one of the tribes. So I think, I think we're at a tipping point where we could see the organization of a politics of the young and diverse cities that are voting for the left and the university cities and the, the, the towns and the coastal areas and that both sets of politicians see that incentivized. I think it's driven by how social media and the national media have an appetite to encourage conflict. So I think we've got to be realistic that that exists and find out how to how to push back, how to push back against that. And I think it is about creating these spaces of meaningful contact that you're not expecting that do cross these divides. I think we put too much of it actually on our schools um, on the whole, because I think young people have worked on, you know, more tolerant values, um, more experience of contact and so on. And the result of the progress that we've made are quite big generational chasms in the way we see these issues of identity. So you can't do it all in the, in the classrooms if you're not doing it at the school gate, if you're not doing it across generational and geographic divides. And that's a harder job because I think, I think our political system does institutionalize and encourage people to sort of tell one third of the story to one group, someone else tells a third story. That is democracy, but actually that, that risks really putting the polarization at the center and making us think of ourselves as, as on team A or team B. Yeah, so John, it'd be great to hear your thoughts on that. And I just echoing what Sunder said, when, when you talk about the political system, Sunder, I don't see that as just political parties. I see this as the people who lobby government, the third sector, campaigners, we're all kind of, I think, guilty of these kind of narratives which, which set one against the other. But, but John, I thought 
back to Indini's point, and this kind of catch twenty two in a sense, which is, which is in a sense, we want to engage with each other on the right terms of respecting each other and uh, deep recognition of each other, but yet. I think you'd want to argue, unless we're thrust together, we won't get to that point in the first place. But anyway, back to you. That that is basically my position. I I think um, uh, to to Ndidi's point, if we just put people together, and we think they're going to sing Kumbaya, and the world's going to become some magical place, undoing you know hundreds of years, for example, of racial inequality, that's insane. I mean, <laughs> that's just lunacy, uh, and that's definitely not my view. But if we think we can get that change to happen without people mixing and connecting with people and having humans are not always great at abstract thought. Like, you know, we come to our moral positions generally to explain our biases. You know, I, uh, Jonathan Haidt is brilliant on this. You know, I, I brilliant on this. basically our, our moral reasoning is to explain our existing positions that we feel our way to. And so I think if we think we can just talk to people and convince them, which isn't what you're saying, indeed, but if we think that will do it, I, I think that's um, I think that's far too optimistic, and so I don't think we can get where we need to without connection. But connection by itself doesn't do the full job. Um, it's got to be more than that. But let me let me give a very practical example. If you look at um, uh, there's been great work looking at to what extent people are prepared to pay slightly higher taxes for things that will benefit everyone in their society, whether that's something not very exciting like a bridge or something like a school or a hospital. Um, in uh, in uh, parts of the US uh, which are uh, um, uh, diverse either by age or by ethnicity, um, where people don't connect, people tend not to be supportive of those taxes. And when you talk to them about it, the, the, what seems to be going on is the sense that the people who are benefiting are not our people. And so if we're serious about trying to do something about even something simple as a bridge, um, and we think the argument's really clear that it's going to build the economy and create jobs, actually without connection, you can't even move society in that direction. So, so my view is, unless you have connection, uh, you, you just open democracy up to people taking advantage and telling these stories with connection, well, then you can start building and doing the work. But the connection itself is not the work. Um, but without the connection, it's very hard to do the work. So this has been such a fascinating conversation. We could go on for hours and hours. And I, I think we're, what we're getting into here, which has been great, or three of you is the really hard politics of some of this stuff. But I'm going to I'm going to end with something slightly more lighthearted in a way, which is to, to just ask you because broadly speaking, although we've got into some of the challenges here, we agree with John's thesis. I'm going to try one idea from each of you in terms of what we might do to try to encourage people to mix better, given the benign consequences of this, including the fact that when people mix together, they are then more likely to feel a sense of commitment to collective values like equality and inclusion. So, John, you wrote the book uh, and you've got lots of suggestions um, and I'm going to give Ndidi and Sundar a bit of a moment to think about it. And, uh, but what would be your one killer idea to encourage more connection? So, I mean, the killer idea for me is about the mandatory stuff that we need to introduce. But let me give a slightly sort of simpler thing that an individual could do uh, immediately. Just change who you follow a bit on social media. A very simple little thing. Um, you know, how much do you actually, how many of the people that you see when you, after you log off this, bring up your, your Twitter account, whatever it might be, and just see how many of the six people you see say something you disagree with. And if the answer is zero, then change who you follow. Very simple thing we can all do. Very good. Okay. Um, I'm going to give Indeedy and Sunday even more time by making my suggestion. And you don't mention this at all, John. It's the only thing about the book which I didn't, wasn't happy with. Uh, I'm a massive fan of deliberative democracy. I think deliberative democracy, which is based upon getting a representative sample of the population together to work on an issue, shows people in the most positive light and demonstrates the capacity of highly diverse groups to grasp an issue, to debate the issue and to come to really thoughtful conclusions. And I think it, it, it also mitigates some of the kind of some of the baleful consequences of representative oppositional democracy that Sundar was talking to. Uh, a moment ago. So I think deliberative democracy is good for decision-making, good for democracy, but is also a great symbol of our capacity to bring people together to work on a common task. And at the end of it, you know, people have become friends. So I think it's, uh, I don't know why you didn't talk about it, John, but next edition, you'll put it in, I'm sure. And Didi, do you have a single idea for how it is we might become better connected? 
well, maybe mine's not as surprising as it as it should be, but I would um, invest in local youth clubs. I really would invest in spaces where young people can gather. I, I appreciate Sunder's point, and I completely agree that we cannot put everything on schools or on that generation more broadly, but I think they're a powerful start. Um, and so we need to ensure that there are communities and spaces where an eclectic mix of young people can come together and do productive things together. Um, you know, things like social action or community work or, you know, all sorts of things that you can imagine. So that would be my kind of um, question. And I love um, John's kind of challenge and I've got my own. And, and the challenge to everyone listening here is, do you know what your local youth um, op opportunities are? Are there local youth clubs in your area? Where are they? What do they offer? If they aren't there, help us get them there. Uh, great point, indeed. And of course, the rundown of funding for things like youth clubs, public spaces, also community activities is, is a big part of that, which we haven't really touched on. And, and, and there's no doubt that's had a big impact. Just one question, indeed, about that idea. Would you be happy if the funding for youth organisations was linked to them, be, them being required to really reach out to make sure that the young people were a truly diverse group? Yes, and I actually think the appetite is there from them. The, I think there's something about technology and digital that will enable them to do that better. And, you know, lots of things we're working on that I'd love to talk more about. But yes, 100%, I think, um, but how do you help them do that um, is, the, is the question, not just mandating it, but ensuring there is the infrastructure and technology to enable them to do that. Brilliant point, yeah, thank you. Uh, Sunda, last but not least. Yep. What, what's good, Matthew, about your deliberative democracy point, whether you're discussing a big national issue or quite a practical, small local issue, is that is that people encounter people with different views, um, not the caricature of them that they know, but the real version of them. And people are very open to this kind of perspective taking where they say, oh, I'd never quite put it like that or heard that. That's important too. I'm still right, but that's important too, is a very valuable point. So I think the key to this, any institution can do anything, is to invite people to things to do something together where you're not a bit of a do-gooder or a weirdo if you if you turn up so it could be something quite difficult like write the whole uh, budget for the local area or something but it could be something much simpler like you know we're going to do this thing together or you're all invited to this and that you get the sense that it's a tipping point thing many people are going i should go too rather than um you know it's something you know, it is something where only the really keen people will go. So it's a bit odd to actually get involved in this bridging activity. I think, I think, I think there's just a public appetite for that that is underserved. But people are not going to bootstrap themselves into going and knocking on all of the neighbours' doors and being the person to do that. I think there's a diffidence that stops people doing that. Great, fantastic points. Well, we're going to have to wrap up there, John and Didi Sunder. It's been fantastic talking uh, to you. We've delved into some of these issues. And as I say, I think there's a lot more conversation to come, which will no doubt be provoked by John's brilliant book, which is, as well as being do-gooding, uh, to use Sunday's phrase, is also incredibly entertaining and and full of fascinating stuff that you'll want to share with people. So I can strongly encourage you to read it. You can get hold of the copy of Fractured. Um, the information about it will be in the YouTube sidebar and on the RSA events social media. And you'll also find more information there on building a stronger, more united society as an RSA fellow. Do click on the links to find out more about our current research agenda, global social action projects, and how you can get involved. All there is to say from me, but I just want to close by saying thank you to John, Ndidi, and Sunda, and thank you all for watching. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.